welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. More and more states are opening sales for recreational use of marijuana, and tribes are working to capitalize on the opportunities. In some cases, tribes are pushing the boundaries of what's allowed in their states. It's a day that cannabis advocates take to celebrate and raise awareness for cannabis. We'll take the opportunity to assess some of the notable and interesting developments in the tribal cannabis industry right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A group of First Nations leaders from Canada is highlighting priorities this week at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues taking place in New York. Assembly of First Nations National Chief Roseanne Archibald held a press conference Wednesday with four other Native leaders. One of their top areas of concern missing and murdered Indigenous people. Vice Chief of the Federation of Indigenous Sovereign Nations, Ali Bear, says society is targeting women, girls, and two-spirited plus. She says more needs to be done to protect them. We continue to see an increase of our Indigenous women being murdered, especially the latest case, Linda Beardy in Winnipeg, who was just recently found in a landfill. We are not trash. We are not garbage. We deserve to be valued. Uh, traditionally, our women held high respect in our communities. And is that colonial violence that came here, that colonial mindset that came here and you know, put us to the lowest of the hierarchy. And now we're, re re we're regaining that power. We're regaining that leadership. Bear and the other leaders are calling on Canada to implement more than 200 recommendations made after a national investigation into missing and murdered Indigenous people. Yupik and Inupiaq students from 4th to 8th grade recently competed in a native language spelling bee in Anchorage, Alaska. KMBA's Rhonda McBride has more. New word. Jingsik. In the Yupik language, or Yuktun, Jingsik is the word for little people, elf-like creatures who wear cone-shaped hats. Jingsik, C-I-N-G-S-S-I-I-K, Jingsik. Means good. You got it right. And Noonam Iqwas team heard that word a lot. It swept all three top spots. Elena Canoe, an eighth grader, took home the first place Yupik spelling trophy. Feels good. Winning. Winning for the second year in a row. Her coach and Yupik teacher Savannah Strongheart says the news made her feel a little dizzy. <laughs> I'm so excited. My goal ever since I started was to get one, two, three. And this year I have one, two, three. So I'm like all excited and I want to scream. <laughs> oh my goodness. The spelling bee came full circle this year, especially for those who've been involved since it began 12 years ago. One of the students who took second place in that very first spelling bee returned as a guest speaker. There's so many opportunities for young kids these days teaching their native language and culture. Twelve years ago, Casey Jack was an eighth grader who represented the tiny Bering Sea village of Stevens. Today, he's an adjunct professor of Yupik language at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and credits the spelling bee for sparking his passion for his native language. One of the defining moments, I would say. 
While the Yupik spelling bee had four schools involved, there was only one team for the Inupiaq language. Cameron Toktu of Brevik Mission took first place. Casey Jack applauded the school's efforts. He says he knows from personal experience how small steps can take you a long way. In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. Meanwhile, in Anchorage, Thursday is a big day for Native athletes who have come from around Alaska to take part in the 2023 Native Youth Olympic Games. The first day features three competitions, the kneel jump, the wrist carry, and the Alaskan high kick. The game showcase traditional Native survival skills and promote physical endurance in the wilderness. The games continue through Saturday and also include a blanket toss and a pilot bread recipe contest. The games are hosted by Cook Inlet Tribal Council. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 27th, 28th, and 29th on the Powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Tribes across the country are cashing in on the cannabis industry. Others are hoping to get in on what is turning out to be a profitable enterprise. Large-scale tribal cannabis operations are underway in New York, a state with more than 100 cannabis businesses after recreational sales started a year ago. The Shinnecock Nation will soon open a 5,000-square-foot dispensary, and the Oneida Nation plans for a 50,000-square-foot dispensary. Washington State has the most tribally-owned dispensaries. Today on our show, we'll get the latest updates on Native-owned cannabis businesses. We also want to hear from you. Has your tribe embraced cannabis as a business model? Has it had any effect on your community? Join our conversation by calling in at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also continue today's conversation by posting on our social media pages. Joining us while en route to Washington, D.C. is Mary Jane Oatman. She is the founder of the Indigenous Cannabis Coalition and THC Magazine and the executive director of the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association. She's an enrolled member of the Nez Perce Tribe and a descendant of the Delaware Tribe. Mary Jane, welcome to Native America Calling. Happy 420, everybody. Happy 420 to you as well. Also joining us today in Cambridge, Wisconsin, is Rob Perro. He is the founder and president of the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association and owner of Candigenous. He is a member of the Bad River Tribe. Rob, welcome to you as well. Bonjour, everyone. Uh, Super psyched to be calling in from Wisconsin today. Happy 420 as well. And joining us now also from Southampton, New York, is Shanae Bullock. She is the Managing Director of Little Beach Harvest. She is Shinnecock. Shanae, welcome to our show. 
Thank you for having me. Happy 420, everyone. Happy 420 all around. And our fourth guest is on a film set in Vancouver, British Columbia. And folks, this is a a personality that we all know well, Gary Farmer, actor and musician. He is a Friends of the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association member. He is Cayuga, Tuscarora, and Mohawk. Gary Farmer, welcome back to Native America Calling. Hello, everybody. Happy 420. Happy 420 to you as well, Gary. Uh, wonderful that you can join us today uh, while you're on the set there doing some filming in Canada. Mary Jane, I'd like to go ahead and start with you. Uh, it's been a year since our last Tribal Cannabis show. What tribes are currently standing out as leaders in the expanding cannabis industry? There are so many tribes being brave and being bold and moving forward. Um, but, you know, my sister Sinead's tribe, the Shinnecock Nation, is definitely uh, one of the tribes leading in the protection of tribal sovereignty in this space. I really am fond of the Puyallup Tribe of Washington State and the operations that they have going on. Uh, primarily because they're focusing a great deal of the revenue that they are creating from this cannabis economy to put it back into research, the kinds of research that the federal government and state governments have not been funding because of this ban on this wonderful medicine. And so they have four uh, dispensaries under uh, Commencement Bay, and then they have uh, their testing center, center Medicine Creek Analytics, and... Um, natural healing centers like uh, Quibill. Um so they're they're really tearing it up uh, on on the research side of things. And you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't include uh, what's happening for the Bay Mills tribe um, in uh, Michigan uh, with their Northern Lights and Flanders Nanny Sioux tribe. Always got my eye on what they have going on because they um, they definitely are uh, doing some innovative treaty rights research around cannabis. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Puyallup up there in Washington State, and, and of course, uh, the state of Washington, you know, was one of the first to legal. I believe was the first to legalize recreational marijuana sales. And uh, are you seeing that, that tribes are that are located in states that uh, have very open laws with regard to marijuana sales? Or do those tribes seem to be doing a little bit better than states that maybe are tribes that may be located in more conservative states or, or states that have yet to uh, to legalize any form of marijuana sales? Oh, most definitely. A lot of the tribes are, are creating their, their programs uh, very much in um, parity with how the states are doing or with higher uh, a higher bar in regards to the regulation and compliance. But unfortunately, we haven't seen you know more tribes move until the state moves forward with some form of medical or recreational legalization. But that's also, you know, the complexity uh, and reality that Cannabis is still a Schedule One drug that is federally illegal, regardless of uh, you know state uh, reform. And what about these states now, uh, where we're seeing just a, a huge, huge growth in the cannabis industry? Washington, Colorado, California. I mean, are, are these markets at risk of becoming oversaturated? And if so, where do tribal cannabis businesses fit into that calculus? There's definitely uh, concerns with oversaturation. The Washington 
legislature just recently passed an interstate commerce uh, bill to, uh, or introduced, excuse me, to to explore the idea of compacting with other states uh, to open up the veins of commerce uh, to alleviate that saturated market. Tribes really fall into play in, in that context of, you know, saturated markets because we have our own markets. Uh, we have our own taxing structure, business structures. And so even in those oversaturated markets, just like with tobacco or just like it is with fuel, uh, citizens and cannabis consumers are willing to drive an extra 15 miles to save some money. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we're seeing with our, our tribal, tribally owned and operated dispensaries is that people can save a little bit of money uh, for the same quality products or even better products on the tribal market. Now, what about some of these conservative states like like South Dakota? Uh, what kind of challenges are, are tribes facing in those states that are looking to get into the cannabis industry? Oh, South Dakota was, you know, really complex. Uh, we're seeing the the tribes, uh, like Flandreau Sandy Sioux tribe, uh, they they struggled. I mean, they 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 were battling with, you know, with the uh, the opening of their uh, first round of dispensary when they had announced that they were going to be doing uh, like a consumption lounge and have more of a agricultural agri-cannabis tourism component. Um, I think that the, the biggest complexity that we're seeing with states like uh, South Dakota is just a lack of education and that negative stigma that has historically been on cannabis that has, you know, red states or purple states just so fearful because a lot of uh, data is missing and they want to make these informed decisions to move forward. So we're in the catch-22. And then there's, you know, the, the Bible Belt concerns where it's no matter what kind of data that we come forward with for the efficacy of plant medicine, there's just going to be people that have a line in the sand, you know, about cannabis and and Mm. see it as the devil's lettuce and we'll always see it that way. (laughs) The devil's lettuce, certainly. And, you know, it's interesting you talk about the stigma uh, of cannabis. And I know that you have been a a longtime cannabis advocate and you've made personal sacrifices uh, as well uh, with regard to to your support and use of cannabis and uh, tell us a little bit more about your background Mary Jane and what just got you so uh, inspired to to work on behalf of cannabis advocacy and just some of the challenges that you faced throughout your career and life uh, because of the decisions you've made you know in a nutshell it's been a part of my life since you know, before I was even born, I was born into a family that has a very high value for this plant medicine. I have a grandmother who is still living, 84 years old, turns 85 next month, and she went to federal prison for growing when I was a little girl. So I, I endured that uh, Reagan administration war on drugs campaign, the D.A.R.E. campaign, the Feed Your Brain on Drugs commercial era, while my grandparents, uh, both of them, were in prison. So I think it allowed me to, to really grow thick skin um, because the family still persevered through all of that um, and continued to, uh, you know, to hold counsel that this was, uh, that this was something that was uh, special and it was here before uh, we were ever invaded by, you know, colonial presence. And so I kind of lived in a cannabis closet more than anything. I, when I started using it medicinally, I was an athlete and I signed that code. So I had to kind of 
you know, be quiet about it for a while. But, you know, it, it just came to a point um, in my professional career where I, I kind of decided that my personal freedom and my personal liberties, I was not going to sacrifice that anymore. I don't want to pee in a cup. And, um, but, and so I, you know, I, most people know me from my work in education policy, uh, serving on the National Advisory Council uh, for Indian Education under the Obama administration. I also served as uh, the president and on the board of directors for the National Indian Education Association. And so everybody knows me, you know, Mary Jane, uh, you know, I've been, I've been around the tribal policy scene for quite some time. And to me, that's a big part of what is happening with this, you know, emerging multi-billion dollar cannabis industry is a lack of education, a lack of advocacy, and a lack of organization within Indian country, and um, a fear from anybody to step up and lead in that direction. And, and so I, I came out of my cannabis closet uh, for Indian country to help um, bring down the um, the barrier with the negative stigma and just networking and connecting each other because it's a really tight you know community we all have our own circles and that's what I really feel like is we just need to circle up and make our circle bigger Mary Jane Oatman on the line uh, she's on her way to Washington DC and she's telling us about uh, when she came out of the cannabis closet and uh, a lifetime of advocacy uh, on behalf of uh, cannabis and uh, now uh, just this growing industry in Indian country. Stay with us. We've got more with Mary Jane and our other guests after this break. A 22-year-old Ojibwe woman is a force in the world of robotics and advocacy for creative science learning for Native students. We'll talk with Danielle Boyer and others inspired by innovative robotics that help recruit interests in fields of science and technology. That's on the next Native America Calling. InsureKidsNow.gov Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking to Native cannabis advocates and business owners with news and updates on cannabis. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to make about your community and cannabis, please join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848 or just dial 1-800-99-NATIVE or swipe it on your touch, uh, touchpad there, touchscreen. Either way, we'll get the call our producers will get you on the air with your comments. Let's go down to our next guest, Gary Farmer, who is on location in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Gary, again, thank you for joining us. And tell us more about your cannabis advocacy work. How long have you been working on behalf of the cannabis industry? Well, uh, probably the last year or two, but I've been an active uh, user and uh, purveyor, especially of the hemp. Uh, and trying to increase hemp farming in, in North America and beyond. 
Were you ever hesitant uh, to talk about your cannabis use publicly? Oh, for sure. There's a huge stigma, as you mentioned, uh, about the usage of cannabis. But I always, uh, you know, I think uh, Floyd Red Crow Westerman was um, the one who kind of socialized me to much of what Mary Jane was talking about as a as a young performer. Um, I also backed away from alcohol some 40 years ago, and um, it, it was a great uh, methodology for me to relax in a world that I, I was kind of born into an industrial age. So it it helped me understand a lot. Now, everybody, uh, especially I think some of our, our younger listeners will know you as the character Uncle Brownie on Res Dogs. I know, you know, this is just the latest uh, character and, and a long string of classic characters that, that you've portrayed over the years. Uh, in service to Indian country. And uh, I, I think what a lot of people get a kick out of with Uncle Brownie is he's this kind of eccentric pothead. And I just got to ask you, I mean, is there some Uncle Brownie in your own personal life, Gary? Oh, why, for sure. Um, you know, it's been an inspired plant for me since, uh, you know, my, you know, I didn't start till legal age, around 20, 21 and um, ever since then, I've been a, a user and, and purveyor of and, and trying to encourage especially the, the hemp plant itself because we're in a battle with carbon and dioxide in the air. And, and the hemp plant is what the seventh generation can use to bring the earth back to some normalcy in terms of the environment. Now, you talked earlier about alcohol, uh, abstaining from alcohol. You know, a lot of people will make this comparison between alcohol and and cannabis and say that they will argue that cannabis is a healthier alternative. It's a more natural alternative. It's a better alternative. Do you feel that way, uh, that that folks are, are, would you like to see more folks uh, put away the bottle, put away the alcohol in exchange for for cannabis? Do you think that's a healthier profile? Why, for sure. I mean, you can see the impact of alcohol. We fought my own people uh, at the beginning of the invasion uh, 500 years ago, fought. Uh, That's how the Huron got wiped out. They were the first infected because they traded rum for beaver at the time. They wanted the pelt of the beaver, and they traded rum for it, and that diseased the people there, and and we had to go wipe that out. We thought it was a disease that we could clear. But look at the impact on our community alone, uh, the tragedy, you know, that we've had to face in our homes and lives, uh, especially growing up to that industrial age, because a lot of our people were the immigrant, uh, as it were, <laughs> migrant workers who, who built the nation. Uh, and and that, that, you know, drug alcohol has has caused us so so many social issues that we're still reeling from. Mm -hmm. Well, Gary, today, of course, 420, and uh, this is a very significant day uh, for folks such as yourself who are uh, advocates uh, for cannabis. And how do you celebrate a, a day like today. I remember back in the day uh, when it was uh, illegal in so many areas, it was kind of this day when people would just publicly go out and and partake. And now in so many areas where it's legal, it doesn't really have that same stigma. It's not, you don't risk going to jail anymore. So how about you? I mean, do you make any special note of 420? Oh, sure. I'll probably write a song today uh, based around the, the day like I wrote for my last 
CD. Uh, I always uh, celebrate along with uh, some of our, uh, you know, other comrades like uh, Willie Nelson and, <laughs> and and the late Floyd Red Crow Westerman and uh, the late Charlie Hill and the late John Trudell. You know, these were all my contemporaries that uh, I truly miss on a day like today. And Willie Nelson, a, a longtime advocate on behalf of, of cannabis. So uh, when was the last time you talked to Willie? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. When was the last time you spoke with Willie Nelson? Oh, it's been a lifetime. But, um, you know, my guitar-playing friend, Derek Miller, went down and recorded some music uh, with Willie a couple of years back. So, we, you know, we maintain a relationship. Right now, you are... Uh, on set, uh, this new movie coming out, Resident Alien. Uh, what can you tell us about it? Well, it's the third season for a, a sci-fi series, actually. It's uh, not a film. Um, it's a long-running series. Uh, we love making it, and uh, it's on the Sci-Fi Network uh, every year. You can catch that. I think there's about 30 episodes out there right now. All righty. Resident Alien sci-fi series, and uh, it's on Peacock as well. It's the third season. Let's go ahead and go to our phones now. We've got Chanupa, who is listening on Keeley in Pine Ridge. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, Wolfie Tonka. Sean, let me advocate something real serious. Gary Farmer, take my number down, 605 605- Five one seven two six two one. And Sean, if you can reiterate my number to him later on in the show before it closes, I appreciate. Gary, I need you to call me. First of all, a lot of the Lakota people here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation do not agree to this cannabis, you know, uh, disbursement of uh, creating these uh, little head shots. Okay. Now keep in mind, people, if the Great Mystery knocked at your door and he said. Sean, you want to smoke a blunt with me? What's your answer going to be? Oh, See, geez. this is how America does things, okay? They capitalize off everything, yet we still have poverty. We still have homelessness. We still have elders and young generations dying every day because of that pandemic. South Dakota, Christy Nome. Now, remember, the other day they were talking about education. Christy voted against that. But she also voted against the legalization of marijuana. I proud her for that, for doing that, because nobody wants it, because that's what causes chaotic despair. And if you all think that, really look at it. Okay. I'm sure. All right, Chanupa. Thank you for calling in, Chanupa. We are in the interest of time. We're going to go ahead and um, go back to our other guests. But Gary, I would like you to uh, just comment there. Uh, Chanupa is somebody who. Uh, Native person up there in South Dakota who who doesn't support uh, cannabis, doesn't support legalizing it, doesn't support the the marijuana industry in, in any way. What's your thought when you hear a Native person like that who says, hey, it's not my thing, I don't support it? Um, well, you know, everyone's got a choice, of course. Um, you know, I, again, I'm looking at it uh, from a more, in terms of dealing with the carbon credits that are available for growing hemp. Uh, I'm talking about replacing, like, lithium batteries instead of digging up indigenous lands south of us. You know, it's dangerous exploration and with indigenous nations. So there's, unfortunately, the stigma attached to the plant is not fair. And, and of course, we're dealing with uh, a lot of addictive issues in terms of the pharmaceutical industry. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a classic help to get from that. Uh, you know, so there's so much positive. It, it's hard to argue uh, anyone who's you know just somewhat uninformed and um, and maybe the experience he's had hasn't been good. So it's it's really hard to judge. It is something that was like an 80-year-old con job, and that's our biggest battle is the organization that we are, is the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association to try and combat that battle, especially for, you know, new uh, peoples that we're on the station here with today to maybe explain some of their operations as they open up the cannabis industry in their own communities. Gary, thank you. Uh, really appreciate that, uh, your response there and, and helping us put some of these issues into a better perspective for sure. And uh, let's go ahead and, and bring in our other guest on the show, one of our other guests, uh, Rob Perro, who's in Wisconsin. And, and Rob, this is interesting. I mean, your business was made possible because of the 2018 Farm Bill. Tell us how that came about. Well, um, you know, we're in Wisconsin, uh, which is a gray state. You know, we have hemp that's legal. And uh, before that, we were really just watching the rest of the country, you know, move in directions that we all wanted to, you know, while, uh, you know, us consumers here were, par- were participating in basically an illicit market. So, um, you know, we had uh, caught wind that, you know, this was going to impact Wisconsin in 2018. And um, we were excited. Uh, to participate, threw our hat in the ring as a farmer in 2019 and created uh, Candigenous as the, you know, first independent, you know, Native American-owned uh, cannabis brand in the state, um, just to just to show that it could be done and that you know, we could get our hands dirty. And as a businessman man who was not necessarily a farmer by trade, um, you know, could explore the industry with with help. Mm, interesting. And tell us more uh, about uh, what. Your tribe there, uh, the Bad River Tribe, as well as others in Wisconsin, uh, what are their what are their takes and where's their position on the cannabis industry? Yeah, I think you mentioned earlier with MJ. You know, it's uh, it's been historically, you know, that the tribes fall in line with the state, you know, who sets the precedent on what is okay to be regulated. And Wisconsin is a PL280 state where, you know, you see. Uh, it's a, it's a state regulated from that aspect of jurisdiction where we kind of have to wait till the state can regulate something before the tribes can do it, uh, which really isn't, you know, the fact per se, but, you know, it's been historically the case and there's been a lot of apprehension around the tribes getting involved. Uh, but what's exciting is, you know, we had a Wisconsin summit uh, in February, kind of the first ever policy and advocacy summit uh, specific to the region uh, and really just created a safe space for, you know, all tribal leadership from the state and, and different states to come uh, share and really open source, you know, what everyone did to get prepared, you know, once they did, once there was a point of entry. Uh, and now we're seeing a number of tribes uh, put out RFPs on feasibility uh, in Wisconsin, uh, which is obviously a great step being proactive for the industry. So, you know, it's there's been a lot of apprehension, a lot of kind of uh, myths about, you know, why they can or can't get involved and what sovereignty means. And I think you're seeing a lot of due diligence on the Wisconsin tribes right now, um, you know, and instigated by some of the work that ICI has done to kind of put some data out there for them to actually digest and make decisions with. Rob, I think so many people are looking uh, to Washington, D.C. And, and, and 
just questioning when and if uh, you know, the federal government will ever lift this ban and, and legalize cannabis on, on a federal level. And if that happens, what does it mean for the tribal cannabis industry? Is it, is it going to be a bad thing uh, or, or will it be no, no issue? Or how do you see that playing out if that occurs? Yeah, I mean, I think that makes the most sense, you know, for that to happen just in general, you know, and us to just kind of go back in time and, and you know, just not have this be a schedule one and, and really just have it be, you know, a, a commodity and a, and a plant medicine. So, you know, what it would do is, uh, you know, I, I don't think much would change uh, in that tribes are going to take their own course of action on this plant, as you've heard, because these are all sovereign nations uh, with their own, you know, pillars and priorities for what, you know, is best for their community. Um, so those decisions would still be, you know, deferred or not really deferred, but always, you know, owned independently by those nations to decide what they want to do with it, regardless of, of the federal, um, you know, decriminalization or legalization of it. Um, and we've seen that, you know, in states where that have gone legal and, you know, the reservation has not, you know, so I think regardless, um, tribes will do things at their own pace. It would obviously open the doors for uh, a lot of discovery. And I think what's important should that happen is that you know tribes are at the table and uh in, in every part of how that administrative rollout looks like from you know regulation to commerce um but we're also you know we have our own say in what our own proprietary uh, landscape of you know cannabis looks like for us let's go back to the phones we've got wes up in homer alaska listening on kbbi good morning wes uh, good morning, and uh, happy April 20th. Happy April 20th to you too, Wes. Thank you. Anyway, uh, I'd like to mention that uh, uh, the different types of cannabis, uh, indica, sativa, and Americana, uh, there's uh, great compounds in there, uh, the CBD, CBGs, and CBNs. And also uh, all throughout history, there's been uh, write-ups on the uh, benefits of cannabis and not only smoking but drinking and eating it and with anything there's also the possibility of substance abuse which i've okay. seen and then i've seen it help quite a bit of people uh, like my landlord and his wife with cancer and other ailments and uh, they grow a lower uh, potency of cannabis for their ailments and right. uh, yeah it's, it's a great uh, medicinal plant been around for centuries okay and, Wes. Uh, Appreciate it, Wes. I'm sorry, we do have other callers on the line as well, I guess, so we're going to move along here. We've got Lisa, who is listening online in California. Hello, Lisa. Hello. Good morning. I just called to, to say hi to Mary Jane, Lisa Montgomery from Maine, Penobscot Nation. Uh, just wanted to just thank, thank you for all your work, and uh, I just do have a quick question for you both. Um, uh, Washington State is um, approving uh, SB 5069 to allow state companies to enter import-export compacts with other states once weed is legalized nationwide. And I know you're a policy lady, so um, do we have anything going on in Indian country where we're getting ready for that? Mary Jane, we're going to have to take a break in about a minute, but if you could respond to uh, Lisa's question there in California, I would appreciate it. 
Yeah, the short answer to Lisa, Lisa's question, and hello, Lisa, happy to, to hear you on the call, is that, yes, ICIA is getting organized. You have some policy think tanks, some of the brightest innovators in, uh, in what would interstate commerce language look like for tribes and, you know, not waiting for federal reform. What does it look like for us to actually lead uh, for tribal nations uh, and their communities in this effort. So um, that is definitely something other tribes are looking at as well is uh, a nation-to-nation uh, trade. Today's April 20th, 420, and this is our annual Tribal Cannabis Industry Show. We're getting updates. Uh, we're getting all kinds of good information on what is going on in tribal cannabis, what the industry is up to, who are some of the leaders and main players in the industry. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848, to share your insights. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still time to join today's conversation about tribes and cannabis. So if you have any insights, comments, questions about the uh, tribal cannabis industry, feel free to call us, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number, 1-800-996-2848. Our fourth guest on the show today, Sinead Bullock. Uh, she is the managing director of Little Beach Harvest. She is Shinnecock. And Sinead, I, I want to ask you, you know, the Shinnecock Nation announced over a year ago plans for a vertically integrated dispensary. It's making a lot of news. A lot of people are paying attention to this project. Can you talk more about the dispensary and give us some background. I mean, what do you mean by vertically integrated? Yes, um, it's so exciting to actually be talking about the dispensary this close to opening. Um, like you said, yes, we have made announcements for a while um, about just entering into the cannabis industry. And so now here we are um, with Timber Up, hiring, um, all of the things, we've got both our medical and adult use license from our Cannabis Regulatory Board. Um, so we are, you know, we're getting ready to, to be opening here this summer. Um, what we mean by vertically integrated is a term that you hear throughout the cannabis industry where not only will we have a dispensary, but we will have um, the operational side of growing as well. Um, what we are uniquely doing um, which, you know, in business, you do have to pivot, especially as Native and tribal businesses, you do have to pivot because of the challenges that we face in entering in the larger markets. Um, so, you know, we, were, we are actually going to be having tribal members um, that are growing, and we will be sourcing from tribal members. Um, so we have like a Shinnecock satellite grow operations that we are kicking off. And so it is really the harvest from the grow on tribal territory that will be processed and manufactured and sold in our dispensary. So vertically integrated is all of the steps, cultivation, processing, manufacturing, 
and retail. So you will uh, have a, have control and have input in, in all stages of production, growing, distribution, marketing, the whole thing. Yes, yes. All righty. New York, uh, a very competitive state right now. I mean, we just talked earlier about the United Nation and this 50,000-square-foot facility. Uh, what other competitive risks are you folks facing there in New York State? Well, I mean, I think the the biggest challenge has been, and we've been pretty um, vocal and out in the forefront about it as, as Shinnecock, is that, you know, we want to be able to, um, you know, work with the state, but also be able to sell products and do business to business with other operators in the state. The biggest challenge has been that um, those operators don't know what kind of risk they're going to take by doing business with a tribe that doesn't hold a license from New York State, right? Because our license comes from our cannabis regulatory um, division, um, but we don't hold a New York State license. So it's kind of risky for operators to do business with us, but I mean, we're looking at it as there is a lot of social equity groups within the state of New York, and a lot of them have been challenged as well entering in the in the space and this is a great opportunity uh for new york state and also for you know tribes to be able to work with those that are having challenges just as well i mean it's this is cannabis we're talking about right you know Mm -hmm. shinnecock is is historically known for being the first people that the new york um the settlers uh contacted right on our shores right in shinnecock we've always traded and we've had a bountiful amount of things to trade. We didn't really see things as, as, as competition. And so in this instance where you have a tribe, there's room for industry, not only just with cannabis, but other kinds of vendors as well um, that we're looking to be able to, to work with. Shanae, I know some tribes have had challenges uh, getting banks and financial partners to, to work with them and just some of these really critical partners that all businesses need. Have you folks experienced any of those challenges, like getting a bank to, to run transactions and things like that? Well, what's interesting is, um, so we're, we're currently kind of going through that um, stage right now where uh, we will be awarded our application um, hopefully within the next day or two, um, with a bank. But what I, what I find might be the challenge, as we've had to obviously go through the same process, right, application process, since we don't have a, um, a license in the state, the bank has to really verify the legitimacy of our cannabis operation. So because we have a medical ordinance, we have an adult use ordinance, we have passed that, the um, LLC of Little Beach Harvest was chartered from the Secretary of the Shinnecock Nation. We have all of the documentation that shows that this is a very, um, and I believe Mary Jane, she used the term, but we kind of have all our ducks in a row as far as being in compliance, not only just with our own regulations, but they mirror New York State. So any of the banks or bank regulators that are really looking at the applications that are coming in from tribes, they just really need to see um, a very tight structure. And if it's not tight enough, I, that's probably where the challenges are coming because it's, it's a foreign government, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a completely different jurisdiction that they're looking at, and it has to make sense for their regulators. So what we've decided to do as a nation is mirror New York State. So what we're submitting is just really passed through 
the nation, but it essentially mirrors the state of New York. All righty. And I know that the federal ban also makes some of these banks and other financial partners a little skittish as well. Let's go ahead and go back to the phones. We have Robin listening on station KUNM here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hello, Robin. We'll go ahead and try and get Robin on the line here in just a minute. So, uh, Shanae, like I, I just mentioned, I mean, in the event that we have, uh, you know, if the federal ban is raised, uh, do you think that will make things easier with regards to banks and some of these other key players that these businesses, these cannabis uh, dispensaries and related businesses need in order to, to thrive and foster their, their growth? Yes, I, I think so. I think just with anything outside of cannabis or anything, like it, it's going to take a collective effort, right? So the more applications that come through tribal nations and native businesses within the cannabis industry, the more it sort of makes sense at a federal level, right? If you don't have any examples to look at, if you don't have a case study, um, then, then it's really not going to be moved. Um, but you need to have a substantial amount of people that are, are going through that process so that there can be um, change in provisional language um, that's made for us. Um, so we're just really excited to be, you know, sort of moving through that process. And we are, you know, we're always open to having conversations with other tribes and other natives um, that are experiencing different things. Um, and we can cross-reference and support and provide resources to one another um, with that because we're, it, this is all essentially new chartered territory not the cannabis trade itself. This is something we've been doing for hundreds and thousands of years. Every tribe has a different story. Um, however, the regulations of this um, is new for us as tribes. However, we've been through many regulations since the arrival of the colonists. So, but it, it's really going to take us coming together um, to strategize how we can kind of move as an industry um, here in Turtle Island. Let's try Robin again, listening on KUNM here in Albuquerque. Hello, Robin. Doesn't look like we're going to get Robin on the line today. Sorry about that, folks. Shanae, earlier we, we heard one caller from South Dakota who was not supportive uh, of tribal marijuana. And I mean, have you experienced similar hesitancy or, or backlash from Shinnecock tribal members uh, back when you folks first had this idea to open this facility? And, and what is some of that criticism that you may have encountered? Um, yeah, I, re- I actually experienced it yesterday. <laughs> um, I will say that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we're all still tribal people. We all still go to tribal meetings. You know, we still participate within our, our tribal, tribal governance as we have been, right? And you're going to have that. Um, But that's what is the opposition. There's nothing in this world that's going to be perfect. Um, And you need resistance to understand how strong you are in your stance, but also to know what solutions are needed for what. Um, Unfortunately, there is a stigmatism, and I think Gary Farmer said it, around the plant. This is a plant we're talking about. The plant does have a voice. And there are certain people that are gifted to um, understand what those messages are um, and, and spend a close time with them and connect with those plants. And those are people like Mary Jane, right, and her, her the matriarchs and her family, right? Um, and, and Creator is placing her in a space 
to advocate on a federal level and a global level and is collectively working with others that have that same kind of um, communication. But it is always important for us to hear, see, and experience the opposition so that we fully understand that we haven't gotten out of the tunnel just yet, right? Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of work to be done. So to that, I, I completely understand. But it's also important to know that not every single tribe in this, in this country has the same story of cannabis. That also has to be understood. And not every single person has needed to be using that plant for different reasons. Um, and that has to be understood. However, the most important part about this is that no one should dictate to any tribe how we should or should not operate what we want or what we do not want. That is called free prior, prior informed consent. And that is what we are advocating for. Whether communities want to partake in it or not, that should be up to them. But no one should dictate to a sovereign tribe what they can and cannot do. Um, that's the most important thing collectively. But it is a plant nonetheless, um, and it shouldn't be abused anymore. Um, other plants, there are other indigenous plants as well, um, that should not be abused, such as sassafras, but I won't go on that tangent. But there are so many other, um, you know, indigenous plants that because we have, there were laws made against our way of living back in the 15, 16, 17, and 1800s, uh, we are here in the 2000s advocating that we undo those laws. Okay. And we create new laws within our own territory um, to make those decisions for us and no one else. Sinead, thank you for those comments, for those insights. Let's go back now to Rob Perro, and uh, Rob is the owner of Candigenous. And uh, Rob, I, I talk to so many people in, in tribal communities, and you know they're they're really interested in starting cannabis industries, either small dispensaries or maybe even doing like marketing and branding services and things like. There's so much interest in that. And uh, what do people really need to understand about this growing cannabis-related industry? What kind of setbacks could they encounter, and and what do they really need to be thinking about if they're serious about entering into a cannabis-related business? Well, it's a grind, um, just like anything else, uh, startup specifically emerging industry, and then you throw in, you know, federal one and, you know, all the complexities that come with, uh, you know, this, this plant and, and the stigma that's already been built around it. Um, it's, it's tough to just say, yeah, go ahead and, and, and jump in. But I think what we're seeing is, um, you know, the idea that you, you don't have to do it alone. And for me, I'm really excited about the industry because this is, as you said, creating new pathways towards uh, economic stability for a family, for a community, uh, for a tribe, um, and pathways towards success that they've never seen before or wealth building they've never seen before or really just being passionate about growing and taking care of a plant in some way um, beyond thinking about the industry and all the different ways that it touches finance, legal, uh, manufacturing, um, science, um, you know, just all the industries that it touches. These are all uh, workforce development, job creation initiatives uh, for Indian country to take a hold of. So, you know, for me, um, I think that's really exciting that, that people want to get involved. Um, and what we're trying to do is really create 
um, you know, tangible pathways uh, for a native entrepreneur to, you know, get some mentorship and get involved with the industry in some way so that they can learn the ropes before they're just diving headfirst and going broke. Because a lot of people have done that, and a lot of people will continue to do that uh, if they're not going in uh, with some form of template and partners uh, that can weigh in on, you know, the peaks and valleys. It sounds to me, Rob, like this is, it's still a business. It's its not easy money, just, just opening up a dispensary. It's not like a license to print money. You've definitely got to have your ducks in the row, like we've mentioned before, to make this work, it sounds like. It, it takes a lot of hard work and some dedication and planning. It does. But, you know, as you said, you know, for all those creatives out there that have been drawing pot leaves for, you know, 25 years, myself included, um, there's a space for that. And that's really exciting. You know, like the, the you know, it's untapped, um, you know, from a creative aspect, from an industrial aspect, you know, from a, a medicinal aspect and, and recreational. You know, we don't know what, you know, new lifestyle looks are going to feel like with cannabis. Mm-hmm. And me coming from a marketing background, you know, that's a cool narrative that we get to control on our own and, and cultivate. Let's go back to Mary Jane Oatman for our, our final word. Mary Jane, we are going to have to wrap up here in about another minute. But earlier you mentioned that your grandmother went to federal prison. And now here we are. We're having this show. We're talking about dispensaries. We're talking about tribes investing in cannabis. What do you think your grandmother would think now uh, that it's so cool and hip to be doing this stuff? And here she went to prison for it. Oh, absolutely. I brought my grandmother down to Las Vegas to experience the National Center uh, Reservation Economic Summit's uh, opening up to the Indus, uh, Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association for a panel. And she sat there in amazement. It was a packed out room. She was empowered to see Indian country uh, digging in deep and leaning into this uh, to reclaim something for us. And I think that it also ignited some uh, light for herself to think about uh, planting some seeds at 85. <laughs> okay. And with that, we are going to have to wrap up this show. So big thanks to all of our guests and callers. Our guests again, Mary Jane Oatman, Rob Perro, Shanae Bullock, and Gary Farmer. Join us tomorrow as we look at robots as educational tools here on Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We'll talk again soon. Addiction touches nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers as a peer support worker with culturally relevant training. More at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. This Mother's Day, you can give all the mothers in your life truly unique gifts from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company, where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. 
Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.